Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Thanks for joining another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic here with Matthew Fairburn, also of The Athletic, and Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Consolidated here to now rehash the Bills draft, talk some UB football, the Bulls in need of a new coach after Lance Leipold leaves uh, to go coach Kansas. Handful of players taken, uh, well, one player taken high in the draft, but a handful of UB players with uh, new NFL homes today. Um, But let's start with what people are thinking about. Uh, Now that we've had a chance to decompress Buffalo Bills draft, kind of dull. I mean, no fireworks. Uh, Who knows uh, if these players uh, make an impact? Uh, No guarantees it doesn't look like Uh, that doesn't mean that they couldn't turn into every down starters pro bowlers all pros hall of famers who knows Uh, we don't and so it's hard to grade a draft but it just didn't seem to have a lot of a lot of crackle to it not a lot of electricity in this in this draft and I think uh, drafting edge rusher twice to me, and this is just a sentiment, this is just a feel. I, I don't, I, I'm, this isn't any kind of commentary on Boogie Basham or Greg Rousseau. But to draft edge rusher, edge rusher, first and second round, just kind of uh, undercuts either player because it seems as though Brandon Bean is saying, we're not sure if either of these guys are going to do it. So we're going to need an insurance policy. And so, and AJ Epinesa kind of undercuts any kind of excitement you may have had about him. So it's hard to be excited about any of these three young edge rushers, um, just with, with how it, how it unfolded. Matthew, what's your thought? I know you've been thinking about it more than most with, uh, all the words that you've been producing for the athletic on this draft. Yeah. You know, this draft to me, was looking a year into the future as opposed to at this season, you know, where you're right. There wasn't a lot of, of sizzle. There wasn't that pick that makes you think that guy's going to make an impact and make this team better right away. I think it was more looking at, okay, Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison in the final year of their deals, you know, finding a way to plan ahead and and anticipate needs. I was reminded because as the draft went on, I think there were, there was a growing sentiment on Twitter, you know, hard to trust Twitter as the end all be all, but there was a growing sentiment of like, what are they doing? 
you know, you know, what's up with this draft? And, and people were getting kind of frustrated. And I was reminded of Brandon Bean saying uh, a few weeks ago, and I was working on that story about the 2018 draft, saying after he left the press conference, after picking Josh Allen, he thought he picked the worst quarterback ever based on some of the questions. Uh, you know, there was question, two or three questions about Josh Rosen, a question about the fans being a little upset about the pick, a question about Josh Allen's accuracy, another question about his accuracy. And Brandon Bean, you know, turned to Derek Boyko and said, like, man, I must have just picked the worst quarterback I could have picked. And I mentioned that to say what you said off the top. We don't really know. You know, if Greg Rousseau and Carlos Basham turn out to be really good players, it will look like a really smart move to plan ahead for the losses of Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison. What I find interesting is that he mentioned Greg Rousseau and Basham are probably left defensive ends in their scheme, which I thought was probably AJ Epinesa's best fit as well. And so something's got to give. And I think what gives to me, as I look at it, this is before we see these guys on the field or before training camp, any of that, but almost every single one of their defensive ends is a guy who can move inside. They mentioned that with Epinesa, with Rousseau, with Basham, and Addison did the same thing last year where you can kick them inside on passing downs. It's almost as if each one of these guys can be a backup for Ed Oliver in some way. And maybe that means you don't need a backup for Ed Oliver. You know, you've got Star Latule, you've got Ed Oliver, you've got Vernon Butler who can play both of those spots. And then you've got all these defensive ends who can just kick inside on passing downs. They said in nickel situations, well, that's a hell of a lot of your defensive snaps. So maybe they're going with more of a ambiguous defensive front, right? Where they're just looking for guys that can get after it and they'll move them around and put them wherever. And if the, the thing about the Boogie Basham pick that's interesting is Brandon Bean claims they had a trade, you know, in place to move down if Basham wasn't there that kind of strikes me as a good place to move down anyway. The best player on your board is a position you just picked, uh, a bit of a luxury to double dip at the position, could have moved back, got more picks, but they decide to, to go all in on pass rushers, some guys who can maybe finish. I know there's a lot of people pointing to the pass rush win rate was very good for the Bills last year. I don't think anybody would accuse the pass rush of being effective against the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game because it wasn't. They didn't finish. They didn't get the quarterback down. Pass rush win rate is ESPN's metric for that. Frankly, I don't know exactly how they figure it out. Jerry Hughes, yes, he, he beats the offensive tackle quite a bit. Some of the other guys, you know, Quentin Jefferson apparently graded really well in that area so well that the Bills decided to release him. So I don't know if that's the metric to use to say they didn't need to do what they did over the weekend. If these guys can finish and make a few big plays, I think people will forget about it you know, going two offensive tackles right after that basically meant the first four picks, which are the picks that are basically going to make an impact. You know, six, seventh rounders aren't going to do that right away, usually, unless you're going for specialists and niche positions like kicker, kick returner. So you're looking at the first four picks as a Bills fan and thinking, well, not this year, you know, like not, these guys aren't, aren't helping us this year, almost like a hockey draft in that respect, right? Where, uh, it might be helpful. You know, we always talk about the crossover of fan expectations. Maybe fans should look at this like a hockey draft of 
you know, maybe a year or two down the road, they'll see the real benefit of these picks. Well, I think that's how drafting is supposed to go when you have a competent, well-run team and an organizational structure that's been in place for multiple years. They've been, they filled all the holes that they felt like they had in free agency and previous drafts and developing some players. And now you're at a point where you should be drafting the best players available at each spot in the draft, each round, regardless of position, and then developing them and not expecting any of these players to make big impacts and, and have big roles as rookies. So I don't think there's really much of a problem with the players they selected and the positions they play and, and not filling some of the holes that the draft nicks and not, not having that sizzle that people would have wanted if they took a running back or a big tight end or something like that. As far as taking two defensive ends and two offensive tackles with the first four picks at positions where you don't really pencil them in as starters right away, I wonder, and maybe Matt can break this down, How does that put any strain on them from a roster, from keeping 53 guys? Or is there real spots for all of these draft picks and, and Epinesa and different guys that they've drafted in past years to all make the team uh, right away? That's going to be the, the big question, I think, because like I mentioned, you almost – the way I went through it when I went through their depth chart after the draft was trim at defensive tackle to make room for some of these defensive ends that apparently can play defensive tackle in passing situations, which is a lot of situations anyways. Uh, I, that's probably how you make room because people are excited about F.A. Aboda, you know, this second tier of free agency defensive end that they signed. I don't see how there's any room to keep a player like that. Daryl Johnson was, you know, this emerging player who had made some plays on defense and, and looked really good on special teams. He's, I don't see how you can keep him on anything but the practice squad. He's a defensive end only with some special teams ability. Then, you know, Brian Cox Jr. Probably, you know, not going to be able to keep him. Mario Addison, it sounds like we'll stick around unless Brandon Bean was just totally blowing smoke. You know, they, they have a high regard for what he can bring to these young defensive ends. And then you also look at it from the standpoint of the contract information I have says they can save 2.9 million if they release him after June 1st. I don't know that that's significant enough to move on from that guy. Could they do it? Could they find a trade, something like that? Sure. But what then happens is, okay, you have to trim at defensive tackle. And those names I mentioned, Ed Oliver, Vernon Butler, Star Latula as, you know, the core three that you keep. If that's the case, that means Harrison Phillips might not make the team or they might you know, have to try to find a trade partner for him. So the numbers on the defensive line are a little bit complicated because of what they've done, unless let's they be, make a trade. Let's be comprehensive with the thought and take it out, even though it's something that obviously we don't think it's worth talking about or else his name would have been mentioned so far, but weird things happen or whatever, uh, you know, things that aren't expected. What about Jerry Hughes? What about his He would have value, right? He would have value. If, if somebody, I mean, the problem is he was their best pass rusher. Uh, so you're really counting on more from Rousseau and Basham if you do move on from him. The number on Hughes would be, I'll pull it up, but he's in the final year of his deal too. So, you know, there is a, a possibility to save some money. He would also have value in a trade because that's the other thing. People look at this and say, oh, they can just trade Harrison Phillips or trade However, not everybody has trade value. And I don't know if a nose tackle like Harrison Phillips necessarily would have that kind of trade value. 
it looks like they could save a decent amount of money on Jerry Hughes, only a 3.1 million dead cap. Uh, don't know what it is after June one, looking at it real quick, but I would be surprised only because he's younger than Addison and he was better than Addison last year. But like, like you said, Tim, you have to take everything into account when you have a depth chart that's this crowded. Another thing I thought was interesting that Mel Kuyper wrote, and this is just Mel Kuyper spitball, and I don't think he's got inside info on the bills or anything, but you know, he mentioned he's thought AJ Epinesa could be a defensive tackle. So that maybe that's a, a possibility, you know, just make him that full time. He did lose a lot of weight last year, a little bit more than they wanted him to. Yeah, so they'd have to like kind of make it right. I mean, you know, they'd have to kind of make a decision there about what they want his body to look like and, and kind of give him a heads up. You can't just be like, Oh, I want to be a defensive tackle. Now let me go into my locker and grab that 30 pounds that I lost last year when you told me to slim down. So a little bit complicated. It will be a tricky numbers game at defensive tackle. Offensive line, less so, I think, because they didn't have... Well, let, let's stay on the defensive line. Yeah, let's stay there. Because yeah. I have a couple of more points to make or, or just uh, ideas to throw out there. Uh, first, just because you mentioned keeping weight on, body shape, all that stuff. It popped into my head last night while we were on set. Actually, we were in the middle of the show for the uh, channel four draft uh, recap uh, that we were doing and Sal Capaccio. And uh, I think Thad Brown also had brought up uh, Greg Rousseau and him growing into his frame. We also, I think played some sound of, of uh, Brandon being talking about, well, this guy was a receiver. He's still putting the pounds on it. It is a guessing game when it comes to players of this age when they're this young and how their metabolism works. And I brought it up because it went into my head and everybody was talking and I was one of the last to talk. And when you're one of the last to talk out of six people, you want to say something original, you know, you just don't want to parrot what has already been said. And everybody was talking about the optimism and how he projects. And I said, talking about this weight, the name that pops into my head is Aaron Maven because that was his, he was wildly productive uh, at Penn State, had a ton of sacks. You can say he didn't, you know, it wasn't an accident. He didn't luck into all those sacks at Penn State, just like we're talking about Greg Rousseau. Aaron Maven bulked up for the purposes of his combine and his pro day, and he was able to look the part, but couldn't keep the weight on once you get into, you know, the heat of at St. John Fisher and the day-to-day -day, uh, grueling aspects of burning all those calories during the season. I'm not saying that Greg Rousseau is, is Aaron Maben. I'm just saying that these are the types of things that you still don't know. And granted, uh, health and sciences, uh, all the different things that you do with technology and tracking these guys. And it's, it's, a, it's a lifetime ago when Aaron Maben was drafted in, what was it, 2008 or 2009 or whatever it was. Um, it's been a long time and there's been a lot of things that have been brought to the forefront, but Greg Rousseau was the 30th overall pick. He wasn't the a single digit draft pick like Aaron Maven was. I mean, they, these are not sure things. Um, and so anyway, I just wanted to bring up that the weight aspect of it. And with these smaller guys that you can move inside, what about a NASCAR package? And it's difficult and very dangerous. I think at times in the NFL to anticipate a trend sticking, um, and NASCAR is something that the Seattle Seahawks and the Legion of Boom actually made um, fashionable a while ago. It's there's still, you know, need for. But 
you know, NASCAR pack, the NFL has a, the ability to move and shift tendencies within a year or two span because the lines get bigger or they start drafting this or they start evaluating guys of different size, whatever. Um, but it seems that the Bills, if they were to keep all these guys and start moving their defensive ends inside, like Epinesa or Rousseau, they talk about how he can play well inside and bash him and he's got weight, like too much weight issue. Um, if these guys are good pass rushers on the edge, you start moving them inside. Are you looking at maybe NASCAR situation? Yeah, I think that would be wise in a lot of ways. You know, Brandon Bean, that's what I was thinking about when Brandon Bean mentioned all these guys being able to kick inside on passing downs. You know, 10 years ago, if you're talking about passing downs, you, you can envision that in your head as like a very specific instance. Now when Brandon second Bean and pass, second and long or third down, right. now every now it's now it's now maybe passing down. down. It's like right that's all the time. That oh passing down. So you're saying these guys can play inside constantly because when you're going up against the Chiefs, that's what you're dealing with. Now there was that one game where they decided they were going to run the ball and the Bills did you know offered little resistance, but that's the type of defense the bills went with in that game, you know, to counteract the pass and the, the chiefs took advantage. So when you look around the conference and you say, you know, how can, how can these pieces fit in? I do think you have to think about it a little bit outside the box because you're not going to have three left defensive ends all as top 60 picks or whatever, you know, it's, and split their snaps 30, 30, 30, like they're going to be all on the field at the same time in certain instances. And when you talk about Greg Rousseau and, you know, perhaps filling out his frame, the thought I have, you know, looking at him is like DeForest Buckner, Arik Armstead, that's the body type that he has. And those guys aren't your traditional defensive ends. They're impactful players. Uh, you know, DeForest Buckner is one of the best defensive linemen in the league, but he's really more of a tackle. And you can do some three-man front stuff. Maybe they start mixing some of that in. It, this will very much – I think all of this speaks to the point that this will very much be on the Bills coaching staff and, to a certain extent, the front office having a plan for development because you don't take these guys and, you know, all these moving parts that we talk about, about where they could play, who needs to put on weight, who needs to drop weight, what body types. There needs to be a – concrete plan of action to develop these players and and develop a scheme to best use them because to this point the defensive line has not been a strength under Sean McDermott uh, and they have invested a lot of resources in that defensive line they had the most cap dollars tied up into the defensive line of any team in football last year they had a top 10 pick in Ed Oliver on that defensive line they were missing Star Latulale but they also had their second round pick, AJ Epinesa. So they've tried a lot of things to make that work. Now it's about these players that they've drafted and projected into certain roles, finding a way to make it all work, you know, finding a way to get the most out of these guys. And as we sit here and talk about a year into the future, right? Because, well, a year from now, Hughes and Addison are gone and hopefully these guys can step into their place. That also means looking a year or two, behind you and saying AJ Epinesa and Ed Oliver need to be what you said they were on their draft weekends. 
because developing defensive linemen takes time. And so if those guys are who you think they are, it buys you some time with the other guys and buys you a little bit of goodwill in that regard. So a lot of, a lot of stuff to sort through, but I guess looking at their history shouldn't be too surprising that they've invested heavily in that position group because that's a, a big deal for them. And if you look at it, maybe a year or two down the road with people adding weight, losing weight, et cetera, development, there might be a configuration where they've drafted a full front seven of guys, six of them in the top three rounds, two in the first, two in the second. I don't know if you really can put all seven on the field at the same time right now with the way they play or the skill sets they have, but there might be a package or a way where that can happen. And then they drafted Tredavious White and some other corners and safeties. I think ultimately you do probably want a defense full of guys that were your draft picks that you developed and you built the system around the talent that you have and you cultivated. That's probably the ideal for Sean McDermott in this defense at some point in the next few years. And they did that with, you know, when they had Lorenzo Alexander, they found a role for him. They didn't necessarily have a perfect Lorenzo Alexander comp at, in Carolina, but they found a few different roles and made, made it one role for Lorenzo Alexander. He leaves and people think, man, they got to find their next Lorenzo Alexander. It's like, not necessarily. It might take a couple of guys to be Lorenzo Alexander. Same goes for Shaq Thompson, who they had in Carolina. They haven't had a perfect Shaq Thompson comparison here, but Dean Marlowe's done some of that stuff. They have Matt Milano, who kind of makes it unnecessary to have a Shaq Thompson. And Shaq Thompson was just a player that they loved and decided to make a role for. It wasn't, we have this role and we need Shaq Thompson to fill it. It was, this guy's a really good player. Let's figure out our scheme and make it work. And I think they're going to have to do some of that, to your point, Jonah, with this, this defensive line. Where I think... Uh... I think Bills fans might be nervous about this draft uh, is, and I know that I'm skipping ahead. We were going to talk about the offensive line, but I think it's similar, similar uh, vibe, right? We're talking about guys that are drafted for the future is that the bills needed to get better. If you're talking about flirting with the super bowl, getting onto the doorstep like they did, and then getting smacked down by the Kansas city chiefs, Bills fans and the organization was there were that close, but there's an obvious gap that needs to be filled. And the rest of the AFC East and who and some other things going on in the AFC period, teams obviously got better. The AFC East, five of the top 18 picks, all three teams now have their quarterback. I mean, or at least, you know, the Jets thought they had it with Sam Darnold, too. I'm not saying that those are those questions are answered, but there are clear paths. These teams are pursuing. I think that the gap between the rest of the AFC East and the Bills got tighter. Um, I still think that the Bills are the favorite, uh, the favorite to win the division again. Um, but it's not going to be as, e as easy as it was last year. The Chiefs, with their reworked offensive line, they got a lot better. And yet the Bills are rolling it back. Uh, they are drafting guys. And the, that's kind of where you're handcuffed into doing it. Didn't have a first-round pick. Last year, this year, you're stuck at 30, unless you want to start dealing future first-round picks. Um, but with free agency and the draft, it doesn't seem to me that the Bills got a ton better. People were saying uh, there were people announcing the Bills won free agency just by re-signing their own guys. We talked about that on, on the podcast at the time. 
but where did they get noticeably better in terms of winning the Super Bowl? And I know that that's a heady thing to be saying because a year ago at this time, we wouldn't be having this conversation and maybe we'd be saying, all right, everybody, let's just be happy that uh, this team's winning. Uh, I get to cover something refreshing for a change. Uh, but this, this is the reality of the team. This is the reality of, of expectations that fans have with the bills. I think that's a little okay bit of a flawed premise though. That, that's like Rex Ryan winning the off season or when you're in a fantasy league and you're really excited that you won the draft, but you don't win the league. I think if you got a good team, a good relatively young team, bringing everybody back and keeping that continuity and not losing a key player like Matt Milano is a big win. I don't necessarily know if they did get better. And in the long term, um, maybe not this draft or this free agency period, you'll look back and say that was a missed opportunity to keep adding to the talent. But if the other teams in the division are going to be more reliant on rookies this year and the Bills are playing mostly guys that were all starters and in the same roles last year, I think for one year or one or two year period, the Bills might find more separation between their peers. Yeah, yeah that's a the, good point. You're talking about, yeah, banking on rookies. Yeah, you don't, how often do you see a rookie guiding his, uh, a rookie quarterback guiding his team to the playoffs? Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, the Bills, but like you say, I, I think that when the Bills are in 2022 and 2023, hoping that this is when Greg Rousseau and Boogie Basham and A.J. Epinesa are coming into their own. The other teams in the division have blue chip guys, blue, you know, and, uh, and let's, you know, the Patriots, obviously, you know, the, the question marks are at quarterback with Cam Newton and, and Mac Jones. Um, but the Patriots defense has been built incredibly well. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that bet, betting on, the guys that the bills are betting on to help them bridge to the next step don't seem to be nearly as impressive to me as the people who the jets dolphins and, and Patriots have. I think it's in some ways a, a team building question that we haven't had to stare in the face here in Buffalo in a while with this team is are they better off looking at their team you know, are you better off as an NFL team in general, keeping your team in the mix? And we're not talking like in the hunt here. We're talking in the mix. Like, I think everybody would still agree the Bills are one of the top four teams, top four contenders in the AFC. Are you better off staying in that mix as long as you possibly can, hoping that one year you catch all the breaks? Because you need that to happen to go on a Super Bowl run, whether it's staying healthy, running into the right matchups in the playoffs, all that. Or would it be better to, you know, what was the alternative for them this year? Because they were hamstrung by the salary cap. They could have let Daryl Williams walk or Matt Milano walk and reimagined what their team looked like. You know, let John Feliciano walk, draft a guard at some point, you know, and figure out a way to reconfigure the pieces to better contend. But this weekend, once they got to this weekend, you can get yourself into a dangerous spot when you think we are one player away. Like Jonah said, a rookie is the rookie going to be the one to get them over the top. And as you mentioned, Tim, there there's only so much they could have done 
to get higher in the order. Now, were there more short-term needs that they could have addressed, you know, in the second and third round? Absolutely. I don't think that's debatable, you know, going for a second edge rusher instead of a cornerback or a receiver or a running back or a tight end or same in the third round, all those positions that you could see those, those players getting on the field early, you know, that's where I think, yeah, you could argue that they could get better in the short term, but taking the long view and saying, we want this team to be competitive as often as possible for as long as possible. And maybe one year they catch a break. It's a, it's a matter of philosophies. I know there's a lot of fans out there that say, screw it. You've got the window open right now, go for it. And that's fine. But I remember when the Jaguars were a Derek Harvey away from winning the Super Bowl, So they traded all the way up to number eight. Uh, or the Falcons were a Julio Jones away and traded all the way up to get Julio Jones. Um, almost ended up working out for what one Super Bowl that they made a, a run to. But you know, if you want to continue to build a healthy team, you know, for the long term, I don't totally disagree with the direction they went. But it is very much. It's I think as Jonah mentioned off the top, when you have a team like they have, that's good. A ro- you know, the roster, but then you also have a front office that feels empowered and feels safe in their jobs. You can do stuff like this. It's a luxury that not a lot of teams in the NFL have. You can say, we're going to take these guys. And if a couple of years, two of the first four picks are starting for this team, that's a pretty good draft. And as long as those players are good, I mean, starting alone doesn't, doesn't make you good. But if two of the four are pretty good players, I, I don't think anybody will be too bummed out about it. For the record, the Bills are tied with the Rams at 12 to 1 as the third best favorites. According to betonline.ag, those are updated today. Those are post draft odds. And you say, well, really, how much is the draft going to move uh, the odds for winning the Super Bowl this season? Uh, I will say uh, that the Denver Broncos have gone from season ending Super Bowl odds of 75 to 1, then on. Uh, March 29th, they were 50 to one. And now they are 25 to one. Uh, and gee, I wonder why that is. Uh, it's because people are projecting uh, Aaron Rodgers to the Broncos, which would, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure the, <laughs> the Bills don't need that. Um, although coming out of the AFC West or, he, or the Raiders, there's a possibility there's, there's talk of maybe the Raiders. Um, anyways, they're still 66 to one. I'm looking on, on DraftKings as you mentioned that they're same odds as like the Giants, the Eagles, and not that much worse than the uh, than the Jaguars. So maybe that's the value play, considering if that's if that's the, the boost that the Broncos get because of you know the assumed you know potential deal. If the Raiders are as much in the mix, maybe there's a, a value play there. It was interesting to see what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did. You know, they had, uh, you know, they, they took, a, they rolled a little, uh, they had some, some dice rollage uh, going on. Um, and let me bring it up just so I have uh, all the different picks here. But uh, Tampa Bay, they drafted two picks after the Bills, of course, as the Super Bowl champions. They went 32 and uh, uh, took Joe Tryon, who is, uh, he was. Your boy. Yeah, he was the guy that I projected to the Bills. Um 
you know, Greg Rousseau, I mean, not a lot of people had that. Uh, even when they're lumping together players that the Bills might consider as edge rushers, I, I read articles that didn't even mention Greg Rousseau's name. Um, so, you know, I, you know, that happens, I guess. Uh, but, and especially when you uh, opt out of the past season, maybe out of sight, out of mind. Uh, but then uh, the Buccaneers going with a quarterback at 64, Kyle Trask. Um, he was somebody that thought that, you know, there, there, maybe he would creep into the first round if a team really liked him uh, enough, but he goes with the last pick of the second round. Um, anyway, uh, Joe Tryon seems to be somebody who is more, is, is ready to play or Aziz Ojolari. That was another pick that I, I, I thought in, in, you know, if the bills look back on this in five years, that might be the player that, that people wish uh, that they had taken on the edge rush because Aziz Ojolari, at least with the athletics, Dane Brugler had him as the number one edge rushing uh, prospect coming out in this year's draft. A lot of folks uh, pegged him as a first round pick and uh, he had uh, injury issues that, that caused him to slide a little bit. But anyway, it, it, it's like those to show what, you know, but so many times though, in this, in this uh, process, you do look back and say, there was the guy he was sitting right there. Um, a lot of people liked Aziz Ojolari as either the first or second best edge rusher in this year's draft class. He was there. The Bills didn't take him. Um, Same let's with talk. Uh, Odafe Owe. He was going by Jason in the pre-draft process, but then told everybody, yes. screw, screw you, this is my name. Uh, there was a little mini run of, of edge rushers. And I think anytime the Ravens and the Bucks, you know, these franchises that have established themselves as, uh, you know, smart drafting teams pick a guy right after the Bills pick an edge rusher. Those comparisons will be natural. And then the first few picks of the of the next round, Tyson Campbell, the corner from Georgia, Elijah Moore, who will now be in the division, could have been a nice air. If you're drafting defensive ends and you go with that same theory and apply it to receivers, Elijah Moore a year from now could be your Cole Beasley replacement or your Isaiah McKenzie replacement, you know, whatever. So um, you know, a couple of interesting picks there and same with some offensive linemen that came off the board. Uh, well, certainly, let's, let's take this know. opportunity to mention Malcolm Coons, uh, the UB edge rusher who ends up going in the second round. And, he, and here's to show the, the, the disparity of, of evaluations. Dane Brugler had him rated as a seventh round prospect. Mel Kuyper out of nowhere. And it wasn't like Dane Brugler was off the reservation on this one. I mean, this was, he, this was a common held belief. I'm just mentioned Dane's rating because I happen to know off the top of my head. Then Mel Kuyper a couple of weeks ago out of nowhere projects him as the 41st overall pick. And people were thinking, where did this come from? And sure enough, Mel Kuyper was close. Uh, he ends up as a second round pick. Uh, to the Oakland Raiders, uh, the, sorry, the Las Vegas Raiders, um, so okay. to be UB's second highest drafted player since uh, that's uh, uh, surpassed only by Khalil Mack. Right. Well, it was, it was the third round, and it was the second highest player. Is it? I'm sorry. Mack in, in what was any, he? What was it overall, era? Jonah? Seventy nine. Seventy nine. It would okay. be the third highest ever if you go back to Jerry Philbin way back in the '60s in the third round, and that was the thirty third pick. So. I mean, in the modern draft era, it's Khalil Mack, and then this is the highest any UB player has been selected. And this is the only player within the last uh, – within the current staff's recruiting class, this Lance Leifold regime, 
there have been some players that were drafted, Mason Shrek in 2017, but those are players that were here prior. So this is the first and only player from this run of success that UB has had in the last four or five years, the core players that was drafted. Yeah, I guess it's, it's, um, it just goes to show that people who are paid to evaluate these prospects still can be all over the place uh, when it comes to putting a ranking or a rating or a score or, or whatever it be. Uh, Jonah, I, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot as, uh, as a draft, Nick, but um, you saw a lot of Malcolm Coons. You watched a lot of UB football this past season. What, as you're watching him play, did, did, how did he stand out to you? I thought he was the most draftable player on the team, at least at the beginning of the season and through the season. He was the best pass rusher that UB had and the best pass rusher in the MAC, one of the best pass rushers over the last few years. That type of player usually gets drafted and sometimes gets drafted pretty high. If you go through UB's history, going back multiple coaching staffs and rosters, defensive end, edge rusher has been their best position as far as producing NFL talent. Khalil Mack being the star of that, but not the only one. Stephen Means, Trevor Scott was drafted by the Raiders about 13, 14 years ago. The thing with Kuntz is he was injured during the pre-draft process. Um, I don't know exactly when, what he got in before getting hurt and what he missed, but he, he didn't participate in the pro day. Uh, couldn't do some certain workouts and things like that. I don't know how that affects Dame Brugler and some of these draft Knicks evaluating a guy that maybe they didn't get to see in the spring in the same way. Or you're also talking medical stuff. Maybe certain people evaluating the draft thought Malcolm Kuhn shouldn't be drafted or shouldn't be drafted high because of that injury or because of different injuries he might have had and the Raiders and Mel Kuyper weren't as concerned about the medical. So I think I'm not surprised that Malcolm Coons got drafted in the third round, but I also wouldn't have been surprised if he slid and got drafted much later. There was a wide disparity between him and really all these UB players. Jared Patterson, a lot of people thought would be picked. Some people thought would be picked very high. A lot of people thought he would get drafted at some point. He doesn't get drafted. Cody Awasika was an All-American, you know, an honorable mention All-American and a pro football focus star the last couple of years for UB. I thought he would get drafted. He didn't get drafted. You go back a couple of years ago, we were all pretty certain that Tyree Jackson and Anthony Johnson and some of those guys would get picked and none of them got drafted. So the UB players, Malcolm Kuntz aside, haven't really been real attractive to the NFL teams and the NFL scouts over the last few years. But Malcolm Kuntz, and I think a lot has to do with the position he plays and the skill set he brings, was a player that, you know, Mel, Mel Kuyper and the Raiders at least thought was worth drafting uh, rather high. We're, uh, we're talking UB football. Let's, uh, let's get into Lance Leipold and his decision uh, very late in the game uh, to uh, leave UB and join Kansas. You take a look at his salary, and it's, <laughs> it's pretty easy to see. And, of course, you know, this is a guy from the Midwest. Uh, it's not as though UB is, is where he's from, although it seemed as though he'd laid down some roots here, liked it here, liked uh, – that he was building something uh, that would withstand um, time, that, that the Mid-American Conference is known for having a team and, and different teams taking their turns uh, atop the divisions or atop the conference. And UB was showing some staying power. And I, Lance Leipold had been on the show and, and discussed uh, how proud he was of that and that that's what he was into. But Kansas comes calling with its millions of dollars. And... Um, it's, a, it's a tough for UB at this stage here on May 3rd to not have a football coach. But, um, Jonah, where, where do you think they go from here? 
Well, I think they should try to keep as much of the current staff around as they can. If Rob Ionello is on the website as the interim head coach, I know they're hiring a search firm and doing somewhat of a national search. And, and probably if you look at Mark Allnett as the athletic director in his career, and he might need to make an outside hire and make his mark a little bit, no pun intended, for, for hiring a good football coach. But for where this program is with the roster and bringing back almost everybody from last year, you could really make a case that they're bringing back a returning starter at every position when you count guys that were injured and didn't play last year but started the year before. I would bring back Rob Ionello and try to bring back as much of the staff. I know Lance is probably going to take some of these guys with them, but they have two defensive coordinators, two offensive coordinators. All four of those guys, along with Rob Ionello, the associate coach, recruiting coordinator, have been with Lance from the beginning here all seven years. So I think you could keep a lot of continuity in this program by elevating one of those people to the head coach and running it back with this group, much the same way that UB did with Jim Weitzel in the basketball program a couple of years ago. And that's kind of worked. They're not, they didn't stay in the top 25 and go into the NCAA tournament like they did under Nate Oates, but they were in the MAC championship game and one of the better teams in the MAC and a winning team. And I think that model has worked well enough with two basketball coaches now that I think it would be wise to try it with football, but the dynamics of hiring Mark Allnut hasn't made a marquee hire yet. He's actually elevated the interim coach. I think in almost, if not every sport, almost every sport opportunity that he's had since he's been the athletic director, eventually he has to go out and make a hire. And that has to be a good hire in order for him to eventually be an athletic director at a power five school, which I'm sure is his ambition. Or Such is it, all it, their ambitions, right? Like, isn't that, yeah. that becomes right. part of the problem is like, even if this guy nails his hire, he's moving on and that guy's moving on. So it's kind of a, a, a cycle that, that continues to go on. It's a, a little bit alarming that Lance Leipold viewed Kansas as the opportunity that he couldn't turn down. Like, because of what Tim mentioned, the idea that he's was feeling pretty proud of what he built and, you know, I think was setting himself up to be patient and say, not necessarily pick his spot. I don't think anybody thinks that he was going to jump to, you know, one of these nationally ranked teams, but that it, that it was Kansas suggests that he was ready to jump at the power five when it came calling, because Kansas is arguably the worst power five football school in the entire country. Well, I think money talks. When there's enough money on the table, it's hard to say no. But it is interesting because this is Kansas is the school where Turner Gill, Turner Gill left Buffalo for over that 12 years ago, and it didn't go well for Turner Gill. It hasn't been a place where many coaches have been able to win, if any. And I did think that that might factor into Lance Leipold not wanting to go to a place where it would be hard to win and he could be looking at you know, possibly getting fired in three, four years. At the same time, and this is what people I had talked to had thought that, you know, I didn't want to only pick the only opportunity that if maybe if he stuck around at UB for one more year, they were good again. They have some opportunities on the schedule next year playing at Nebraska and home against Coastal Carolina. Maybe there would be multiple power five jobs that Lance Leipold would be the hot name and there have several jobs to pick from after next season and in a coaching you know, if you make this move in January, there's a lot more open jobs. Right now in May, this is the only open job. But this, it took a while. You know, Kansas had an athletic director change. And I think that 
they probably pursued Lance and maybe convinced him that this was the right move for him. It seemed like a, a bit of a slow courtship and they probably satisfied any concerns Lance Leipold might have had about taking this job at this time and convinced him that this was the move to make. In 120 years of Kansas Jayhawks football, him and I were looking up the same things. They've been to 12, (laughs) they've been to 12 bowl games in 120 years. Haven't had a winning record since 2008 under the vaunted Mark Mangino era. Uh, And it has just been colliding. And it doesn't matter whether they go for the up and comer or they go for a big ticket coach because they had Charlie Weiss. They had less miles. It has been uh, just a disaster. The last it's been a graveyard of, for coaches. How about how about this stat? They have not won. They have won either one or zero conference games every year since 2008. 2008, they went four and four in the conference. Every year since then, one or zero conference games. They haven't won more than four games in a season since 2009. Like I said, arguably the worst Power Five football program in the entire country, and last which I say time. only in part because I I went to Mizzou and really don't like Kansas, but that's only part of it. They do just flat out suck. <laughs> He's got a heavy lift. And Lance Seipel's not used to losing. I think he lost about eleven games in his Wisconsin Whitewater career, and, and coming into UB, they had that two and ten season in the second year, and he was miserable. I mean, he really had a hard time getting through that season because it was very foreign to him having a team at that stage in its rebuilding process. And I think he knows that there will be some of that here at Kansas, but not some of that. This is a massive rebuild. They're coming off the less miles scandal. They went and nine last year. The team is awful. He doesn't have a recruiting. This, he doesn't even have a chance to recruit these players. Right. He's the transfer stuck. portal's pretty much dried up. It, it's yeah, going to be a year before he can really, stuck. really start building this program. And I'm not he, sure you can call it a rebuild. With the recruiting classes, they got better year by year. And it wasn't something where he came in with a lot of, they did get some junior college players, but they didn't build with transfers and junior college players and rebuild the team right away. They built it up over time and they developed well, at least they have here at Buffalo taking guys that weren't, really attractive recruits. And then a couple of years later, they are really good players. And I think he'd be able to do a version of that at Kansas, but it's going to be a lot harder and it's going to be recruiting at a level of player that he's never recruited before, not at Buffalo and not at Wisconsin Whitewater, obviously. And I did think it was odd that Kansas, the connection with Turner Gill, it's not just that they're both UB coaches. Turner and Lance coached together a little bit. They know each other from that Nebraska connection. They were both, you know, I think, Turner was on the or Turner played there obviously, and they were both on the staff at certain points in time, and also coached there at different points in time. But they know each other, and I thought maybe Turner Gill might advise Lance Leipold that that job didn't go too well for me, and I don't know if I'd recommend someone like you going there right now. Yeah, Matt, you were saying it's not a rebuild. You, it's what? No, you can't rebuild if something's never been built before. Oh, I mean, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a, they, it's like. It's a build. Like you need to build it from scratch. They they've had three winning seasons since they joined the Big Twelve. Uh, they had the one good year under Mark Mangino, where you know Todd Reising and all that, and Chase Daniel was lighting it up for Mizzou, and they had you know the greatest game ever at Arrowhead Stadium and all that. Other than that, Kansas has been awful. It's a I mean it's a basketball school. Any school that has Division One football is a football school inherently. Uh, due to revenue but that's one of the few that you could say 
basketball might pull in more the way the football team plays. That might be part of what attracted Lance Lightfoot. He has said that he liked coming to UB at a place where they didn't have a track record for winning consistently and building a winner where some might have perceived that somebody couldn't do that, or especially a coach coming from the Division Three level. He, I think he likes proving people wrong in that way, and there's maybe something about this Kansas opportunity, and, and that's probably what the athletic director, Jeff Long, sold to Lance Lightfoot, that he'll gain a lot of whatever you want to call it, respect and, and pride and, and admiration if he is the first coach that can build a consistent winner at Kansas, as difficult as that might be. It reminds me a little bit of Nate Oates going to Alabama as well, too, is that Alabama was that, really yeah. much of a basketball power, but they were such a great football and softball and other football being the big one, obviously, programs to where it was like, well, there is potential here. If we just do this right and we get the right institutional support the basketball program can be just as good as the football program and maybe that's the sales pitch from Kansas that this football program there's no reason it can't be just as good as our basketball program if we just get the right coach and the right philosophy and the right support from administration here's a fun one uh I was looking up Mark Mangino because I was trying to figure out where why that ended you know because it looked like he had you know they Kansas got a little little into itself there they were like oh man only seven wins you're out of here whereas now i think they'd build a statue for someone with seven wins and this stands out in mark mangino's uh wikipedia entry he is the only coach since the end of world war ii to leave kansas with a winning record so <laughs> that's what lance leipold is up against but you're right john i was gonna say he's kind of pulling a a, a nate oats going to a, a school that you know you can kind of build with low expectations and, and behind the scenes while everybody pays attention and puts the big expectations on the other big program in the athletic department. And maybe it'll work out, but um, anytime, you know, Kansas has made some real splashy coaching hires. And as Tim mentioned, none of all of all different shapes and sizes and, and none of them have really worked out. What do you guys think about UB as far as, bringing all these players back and it being late in the game, the spring practice is already over. Um, do you agree with me that they should probably hire from within to keep the continuity and the momentum going, at least in the short term, or is it sort of like with the bills in their draft? Do you just go and find the, or the, maybe more accurately with the state, we could compare this to the Sabres. Do you get the best coach that you can and not worry about the timing and how it fits this roster? Or do you, try to run it back. This is a team that finished the year 25th in the country and could have an argument to be nationally ranked when the season starts in August. I was going to respond to your Mark Allnut uh, comments that at some point it's the, the belief is that you need to make your big hire, that um, you need to do something transformative so that way you can get your next job. But I think that Mark Allnut could be looking at this. Maybe he should be looking at this as a holistic Look at how good our programs have been and maintained. And it could be too risky to go out and get that new head coach. And why throw away another bowl season or another chance to win or to be even to get to the MAC championship game? All these things that, a, that an athletic director can put on his resume. Yeah, maybe he doesn't make the, the, the big hire for the guy who ends up as you know, a, a great coach in the Big Ten or whatever. But um, maintaining a high level of competitiveness despite losing your coaches could also be something that he could hang his hat on. And I think that you could be 
at this, as you mentioned, because of the timing of it, but maybe even not because of the timing of it, but at least for this point, I'm going to make the timing of it. You could be throwing away a really good season or at least risking it by totally, uh, by, by totally uh, reconstituting the coaching staff at this, at this juncture. So uh, if they have coaches who want to stay, if they have coaches who are, who have the credentials and want the job, then I think that internally is where you should look first because, and here's another point to, you know, just to just popped into my head. Who's available now. All the people Kansas just passed on all the people who are available now are coaches that nobody else wanted. Well, coordinator, I mean, guys that want to be head coaches from power fives, but yeah, it is. It's not the coaching carousel season. And, if you bring in a new coach that has to hire a whole new staff, it's going to be very difficult. Ooh, what about Greg Marone? Or, uh, Doug Marone? Greg Marone. Where did Greg Marone come yeah, from? Doug Marone. Is there Turn a Greg Marone? You can bring I'll look Turner that up. Back. But Doug Marone's available. Not Sort of. Yeah, he's an O-line coach at a, at a big school right now. Uh, the candidates that um, our Chris Vanini – mentioned in his capsule about the the UB job North Dakota State head coach Matt Entz that's a that's like a big swing I think getting a guy like that because is he you know that's another similar to like the Lance Leipold going to Kansas wouldn't have expected it because you think well this guy can sit and wait you know North Dakota State is going to be winning they're going to be in the in the spotlight James Madison head coach Kurt Signetti um North Carolina offensive coordinator Phil Longo uh, is mentioned here. And then Vince Karras, uh, Mount Union. Larry Karras. And Brian Poley, a Notre Dame special teams coordinator. That's with the, the name I've Buffalo heard. Connection. That's the name I've heard. But, you know, you always hear his name and you hear the name of these St. Francis guys locally from people that go to St. Francis and want it to be Brian Poley. And I think that's an interesting name and probably somebody who should at least be considered and get an interview, but I don't know if he's as much of the favorite as it might sound like he's the favorite from the people I talk to locally. Yeah. Rob Ionello also mentioned as well as both coordinators. So there are the in- internal options. I think it's a tricky game to play this late in the process because you're not you know, this isn't the time of year where coaches often change jobs. And so, yeah, it it would be risky, but at the same time, you look at the basketball program and while you would say going internal hasn't been a disaster by any means, you're trying to keep some magic together when you would think this staff is going to start to get chipped away at and, you know, maybe you're just clinging to something that you need to try to recreate with a different, you know, a different good hire uh, that can, you know, keep you on that level rather than trying to hold together bits and pieces of the magic you had under Lance Leipold. I, I just wonder how much of this has been maybe set up, even if it doesn't go that way. You got Rob Annell has been the associate coach from the start all seven years. You have, you haven't had two coordinators the whole time, but you had two guys elevated to be co-coordinators over time. So now it really does set up for Lance to leave and take two coordinators with them, but leave behind a head coach with two coordinators and other members of the staff so that Lance leaves and brings somewhat of the same staff with them and also leaves somewhat of the same staff in Buffalo. It's almost a win-win 
from maybe from Lance Leipold and his staff's perspective, that's probably how he would like it to go. Well, it's certainly yeah. a win-win for Lance Leipold because he got a big fat contract and a whole lot of money from Kansas. So very and, good for know, him. Well-deserved. And that's guaranteed. You know, if you get fired after two or three years, they keep paying you in year four, five, and six. So that's a, a big payday, a big windfall. To yeah, you get to join the, join the club of Kansas coaches getting paid not to coach. Right. I think there's a similar club here locally. Yeah, they golf with the Sabres <laughs> coaches. Uh, for the record, uh, there is nobody uh, who – whoever Greg Marone is, and that name creeped into my head yesterday while I was on the air. I, I went to – so I don't know where Greg Marone came from. There's a guy, the founder of Marone and Marone, and I didn't want to click on his LinkedIn page to find out what kind of business Marone and Marone does. But um, – while I was uh, doing the show yesterday with Channel 4, I went to call, uh, I was going to say Brandon Bean, and it popped into my head, and I said, I was going to say Greg Brandon. Like, where the hell does that come from? Where, how do your mind works? Like, I'm talking I'm about football work. draft picks, and I'm picturing Brandon Bean in my head, and I mean to say Brandon Bean, and I- And Greg Rousseau. I said Greg, I said, but- all right. I, that could be my out. I could, cause I actually said the words, Greg on the air, the word Greg on the air. I could say, all right, I, but that's not what I said. I was going to say Greg Brandon and I caught myself halfway through and I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck, how does this happen? Any, anytime you say Greg, I think of our friend at Elmo shouting at us from across the bar like this every time he has something to say. Well, it gets loud in there. Um, all right, let's put a bow on this. Any other thoughts on, uh, on the weekend, we've had a chance to digest it. We've had a chance to digress from it. I mean, I have no real thoughts, but this is the Sabres' last home stand of the season tonight and tomorrow. All right, let's let's talk for at least a couple of minutes about uh, Don Granado. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how yeah, it seemed right, but now I think people are like, hey, where's that? Where's that? Uh, where's that national coaching search at? <laughs> when do when do we get started uh, with that? Yeah, all I don't of a think Don... we're hoping hoping the money uh, turns up under the couch cushions to do <laughs> one of those because that, that's and that's sort of what we cautioned, right? Is that this guy looks great compared to one of the worst coaches in NHL history that has walked through this this you know building before him, so it becomes the same question that we've asked every Sabres guest that's come through here is does it matter? Because is it just going to be a financial question? And if it is, then maybe it doesn't matter. And, and he ends up getting the job after a thorough and expansive search. You know, they found the best coach just happened to be sitting, sitting right in the office next door and willing to do the job a lot cheaper. And I think you have to evaluate him based on the process and some of the not, – not so much on the results and the score of these games and whether they're winning or losing, but how are they playing, how are the players reacting, how some of the younger players seem to develop, even if maybe they've taken a step back, Casey Middlestad and Rasmus Dahlin and some of these guys. I thought a couple of weeks ago that the roster seemed to respond well to Don Granado and the coaching change, and that was a big, as Tim likes to say, feather in the nest for – uh, Don Granado being the coach next year. I don't know if that – I feel as strongly about that now two weeks later, but that's still something that inside the building, Kevin Adams should really be evaluating, you know, who's the right coach for these players and this team because they didn't 
blow up the roster. They didn't trade Jack Eichel. And maybe Don Granado has shown that he is does deserve a full season with Jack Eichel and healthy goaltenders and, and a little bit of a reshaped roster for his system before they make the big I, – I, see, I've always thought that you, you blow it up and you hire a new GM and a new coach and a new president and maybe even trade Jack Eichel. You bring in a whole new regime to make all these big decisions. That's the move to make. And if you're not ready to go all the way with that right now, then bring Don Granado back for another year, see how it goes, and make that big sea change a year from now. Yeah, it's different than the conversation we were just having with football coaches, especially college football coaches, where you're kind of we are locked in for a while. Hockey coaches, uh, you just move right through them. And unless there's a financial aspect to it, yeah, Don Granado could be back next year and stick around for six months. Um, So who's to say? Uh, The other aspect of it, too, is we are not privy or privily uh, to what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, regarding uh, Don Granado, how he's working with Kevin Adams, um, the the bunker mentality that happens uh, when you're in these situations. The Pagulas might love him similarly to when they had to they were forced to fall in love with uh, Russ Brandon and Doug Whaley after Doug Marone quit on him uh, or you know took over, ran away with the money, uh, and I think based on information I had at the time that Russ Brandon and Doug Whaley were probably gone uh, prior to that decision that Doug Marone made Uh, Bill Polian coming in, all that stuff. But then the Pagulas were forced to rely on Russ Brandon and Doug Whaley down there in Florida as they were going through the coaching search and they warmed up to them. And the Pagulas, I, I think it's fair to say are easily impressed. And as long as Don Granado, I think, has open communication with the Pagulas, with Kevin Adams. I still consider him the front runner because he has the access and he's talking to them and he's explaining himself on a day-to-day basis. You have an interview with Terry and Kim Pagula, you get to explain yourself once over the span of well, however many hours you're doing the interview, five, six hours, whatever. Maybe you break for lunch, maybe you stay overnight, you come back and you do it again. But Don Granado is talking to them every day, explaining every decision, explaining how he would do this. So, um, but I would, I would definitely say that the sheen has, has worn off the idea of, of Don Granado being the obvious uh, decision to, to keep the job. And Kevin Adams might want to be careful. This isn't really the best move for the Sabres, but for Kevin Adams, he might not want to hire a strong coach with a, veteran background and ties around the league who might come in here and win a few games next year and then decide to convince the Pagulas that either he should be the GM or he should bring in his guy as the GM. I think there's a lot of potential for that happening if Kevin Adams hires a coach who has, who has the hammer. Right? I think if he brings back Don Granado, uh, Kevin Adams still has the hammer, at least over that part of the organization. Excellent point. Excellent point. Guys, thanks for doing this. I think we touched most of the bases. Um, it's going to be almost NBA playoff time. Uh, so we'll have to put together that kind of show. Yeah, we'll have to have Jerry Sullivan to come on and talk about his fantasy basketball team in the championship finals. I was excited about that, texting me at all hours of the day. Nobody wants to hear anything about anyone's <laughs> fantasy <laughs> you're team, right, you're let right, alone you're Jerry right. Sullivan's. Yeah, you're right. But you know what? We're an hour into this podcast. So if people are still listening, maybe they're interested in anything we have to say about it. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. 
any anything we say, they may be interested in at this point. Right. Uh, yeah, you you're right. Tell, you should tell your coffee story. People might get a kick out of that. I need. It's like a science experiment. I, I as soon as I hit, uh, as soon as I stop recording, I'm going to go check it out. So I try. Uh, we have a new coffee in the house, but it's Maxwell House. It's just in a different package. And I went to make my pre-podcast coffee, and I make ten cups, and it's the little cups. So you know, don't judge me. Fairburn thought I was injecting it. Uh, wasn't judging. Uh, I was just worried about you. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and I also teach my class at Canisius on, on Monday nights and I like to have some coffee. So I was going to make the 10 pot or a 10 cup pot. Uh, it's also the math that I know. I know how many scoops for 10, for 10 cups. And if I lessen it, then I have to do math and that's not my thing. So I put in my four scoops of Maxwell house into the machine. I hit the button and it tells me it's done. I hear the beeps. I go to get a cup, but there's only eight cups in the carafe. So I open the lid and it's all backed up and it's all over the counter. So I had to clean it up. And then I noticed that there's no grounds left in the filter. So all the grounds went through the filter. So Oh, you know what I bet happened? Just talking it out. I bet it backed up in the filter. So it raised like it clogged. And the, and the, uh, and the, uh, the ground spilled out over the top and then down into the, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. There's still, but you know what? There were no grounds in the filter as it emptied. That means every ground would have flowed out the top. That doesn't seem right enough water would push that out. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I want this to be kind of an Easter egg. I want to see if anybody tweets it at you or us and, and maybe has solved the coffee dilemma when they get to the end of this. Somebody podcast. will. Somebody you, will. You I sure predict. You put it right in the, right in the filter. You didn't miss yeah, the filter. Yes. <laughs> yes. This had to have been user error in some way. I'm going to, it's going to be, I'm going to do an experiment afterwards. I'm going to try it again, see what happens. I think it might be the new coffee. The coffee grounds looked funny. Hmm. It looked more like, uh, and it says right there, it says Maxwell House uh, original blend or whatever, but it was like the crystal, like you'd see. And whereas the other stuff is more traditional grounds. This looked funny as I was scooping it in and I thought, well, it's a different canister. So I'm going to have to investigate. I think you need but the coffee was coffee disgusting. That's because it was just water sitting on grounds. <laughs> Oh. Not, it wasn't really coffee. All right. Uh, not a good advertisement for Maxwell House. Right it, I love Maxwell House. It's we're a, Ma a Maxwell House family for generations. My mother and my mother's mother all were Maxwell House, and probably my mother's mother's mother. Maxwell House, made in uh, Jacksonville, <laughs> Florida, right near the stadium. Not a sponsor uh, of this show, though. <laughs> no, I went down. I went down to uh, Jacksonville plug. to interview Dave Caldwell at his office once, and in Jacksonville, and I don't know if it's because of the heat or what, but from my hotel to the stadium, fifteen mile drive, I did not pass a single coffee place. No Starbucks. Of course, they don't have Tim Hortons down there. No Dunkin' Donuts. No nothing. And I even circled around the neighborhood looking for a couple. And then finally I decide, well, hell, I got to get to the stadium for this interview. And what do I do? I drive right past the Maxwell house headquarters where they make the freaking coffee. 
but I couldn't get a cup. So one more reason why Jacksonville can suck it. You think it's because of the heat that they don't sell coffee? I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking for Did reason. You ask, Do you Did think you it's ask some, yeah, you would think you'd be like, Hey, don't you just got some coffee lying around? You are a coffee factory. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I remember when I lived in Fort Lauderdale, there weren't a lot of Dunkin' Donuts. You, you had to know where the Starbucks was if you wanted a cup of coffee. Hmm. Or even, you know, oh well, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop before I get myself in trouble. Thanks for listening to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK. Listen to an advertisement right now about that very sponsor. Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond.